I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Easily said from a guy who's very fertile. Welcome back to the front three. Adam Boltwood here alongside Chris Hennage. Good evening. Nico Morales. How you doing? And the big daddy himself. <laughs> Lawrence McKenna. Lawrence, how are you? I'm very, I'm excellent. I'm incredible. I'm surprised. Uh, what a great week. Yeah? What a, what a week to be me. How, how is fatherhood treating you, first off? Um, a lot of people warned me, a lot of people said, you know, this is going to be incredibly difficult. And I said, mm, if Steven Spielberg can do it, I can do it. <laughs> what a response. So you've, you've handled it with ease, with the, with the grace yeah. of a master director. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's also, it's also funny because I, I did genuinely think, I thought, well, if these people can bear children, then <laughs> someone, is, someone who has a simpler life as I do definitely can. And he is a beautiful boy. So oh, it's, it's beautiful stuff. And is, is it a week old? He's just over a week old? He is a he's a week old yesterday, mm. and it was his due date today, as we record. Oh, wow. So he was meant to be born on this moment that I'm talking to you. Who was meant to be? Is that born. Amazon it's Prime early. shipping getting real early nowadays? It's really, really <laughs> incredible. I ordered him. I ordered him so long ago. And, and how did he? How did he celebrate uh, Liverpool's momentous? title win how did he react that's what we want to know uh he was uh, i've actually got a video i think of his first ever liverpool goal which was trent oh alexander God. arnold's free kick against crystal palace and he um he i think i turned to him and i'm like the crowd goes wild and he's just laying there just completely motionless just so tired just, from completely, just completely incoherent in awe of the, of the yeah. power appropriate reaction uh, yeah in awe of my power and also in terms of uh I think I've sent that to, I can't remember if I sent it to him. They were like, oh, he's absolutely legless. This is disgusting. <laughs> um, I just want to be absolutely clear. I didn't give my child any alcohol good. yet. Okay, that's good. Um, good to make so, that clear. Yeah, a happy, fam- a happy family home. A beautiful, a beautiful baby boy. It is, as you said, an incredible week for you, as you said. The birth of your first child and Liverpool winning their first league in your lifetime. But which, is be- which is better? You tell me. It's the second league in my lifetime. Might be the, yeah, it's the second league in my lifetime. And it's the first Premier League in my life. Mm. The first you maybe uh, were, were you two? I guess when the first, the last. It was, I think it was one actually. I think I might have made. It may have even just about been zero at the time. 
I mean, uh, you know, what I have very unhappy memories of as a child was growing up and being completely bewildered as to why Liverpool were um, essentially holding the same status as Manchester United held about two years ago when everyone was just like, what is this wilderness these guys are in? Mm. You guys are a joke. Everyone could just say whatever they wanted. You know, it wasn't as bad as Arsenal, but it was, um, you know, it was it was it was poor. And so winning this now, but honestly, like makes me think back to when I was about six or seven, when I remember I went to and visit my grandma and there was a, a builder there. And he was like, and who do you support, son? And I was like, Liverpool. And he just laughed in my face. <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a 40-year-old man laughed at wow. like, a, like a five, six-year-old child. And Ah, football, the great equalizer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I said, you're going to die of coronavirus in 30 years. And he just laughed. <laughs> and he, and I, I was playing the long game as a four-year-old. Yeah. You had the last laugh, Lawrence. Um, <laughs> we are going to be talking Liverpool's momentous title win, of course, their first in 30 years and the legacy of Jurgen Klopp's side. We're then going to discuss the study into racial bias in football commentary that was released yesterday before finishing up by talking about Leroy Sané to Bayern Munich. But first, of course... How, how how did it feel, Lawrence? I mean, obviously, it was a week ago now. Have you have you sort of come down off cloud nine? Explain to me what the feeling was like. It's obviously very emotional. It's a feeling I may never feel. Chris may never feel. <laughs> it's, I think, I mean, Nico, I don't know what you would say about it, but it is the first time that you taste that is a real, there's something really special about it. And it's different to, it's different to the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Because the Champions League is like a cup competition. Thanks for, thanks for telling me that. I was wondering <laughs> yeah. what that experience Sorry, might be. One day, one day. One day. As the person on the podcast who is the only person on the podcast with experience of winning every available trophy, mm. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's important that I tell you that it's different to winning the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Because the Champions League is this moment of elation where you're like, oh, we did it. The league feels much more of a grind and feels like so much more of a... Um, you know, this this moment that you've built up to, whereas the Champions League is a very different route and therefore you have different emotions at the end of it. And I think, you know, that years and years of it and, uh, you know, waiting and every year is our year. It feels, what I thought as, a, as an opposition rival fan, I thought this would be unbearable. <laughs> Liverpool actually yeah. winning the league. But it's so hard to dislike them, in my opinion. Now, obviously, they're incredible players. It's obviously an incredible coach. It's very difficult to, to kind of begrudge them this success do you feel that from from rifle fans i think for any for any reasonable person it is uh difficult to begrudge in in terms of every aspect right you can't be, you know you can't fully begrudge any team something like, you know even even when man city won it i was like wow you've really got to appreciate this so you've got to you know you've got to say that the great guys there I think that there will be uh, i think you know britain is one of those countries that builds people up to knock them down mm-hmm. And I do sometimes have that element with Liverpool where I do, you know, we've obviously had these silly conversations in the moment. I guess I'd sort of swept myself along with the idea that, oh, Liverpool are this fantastic team and all these kind of things. I, in reflection now, I also think there is a danger that Liverpool could fall away quite quickly without re, wow. um, reinvesting in the team and without, uh, you know, taking the side forward. Um, I do think there are a few holes in the side which just 
blatantly just haven't been exploited or other times when they have been exploited, Liverpool have really suffered. So um, I don't think they're quite the great side, but I do think what they've achieved is great. I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Well, I think, um, you know, if you look at sort of the revision of a, of a variety of different sides, um, people look at the Manchester City side of a couple of years ago, the one that had 100 points as like a historically mm. great Premier League team already. People look at, let's say, but people look at, for example, maybe um, Antonio Conte's Chelsea side that won a few years ago with a little bit, I think, of revision in saying like, were they really that good? There was this massive run at the beginning and then they kind of wrote it out at the end and so on and so forth. And I think what sort of engenders that sense of revision is the manner in which they won it. And like I mentioned, sort of the record plays a a role in that. And I think that's why City enjoy a certain aspect of that with regards to their 100 point team, because it was so much and they were so dominant and the manner in which they played was enjoyable for everybody. But I think you can say the same thing about um, Liverpool as well, because in an era where so many teams, so many teams that have money and ostensibly can compete for the league every year, play in such a similar way where they maintain possession and circulate the ball and do things in a relatively similar manner with different pieces. Liverpool genuinely attacked it differently. They they are a very different team than Manchester City when it comes to how they play against smaller sides. They're a very different team when it comes to how they play against larger sides. You know, they're a transitional side and they're one that has a concrete, you know, calcified identity under Jurgen Klopp. And I think you can look back and we'll look back in, in the years to come, whether or not the, the, you know, Liverpool as a club fall away or, or continue their success to whatever extent that may be um, with a degree of appreciation, because it was a genuine departure, tactically speaking uh, from a lot of other se- a lot of other teams. It does feel quite dominant. I mean, they're on 86 points now, 28 wins or just one defeat. Yeah. They have they they have dominated a relatively weak league though if we mm. be if we are being completely honest and you know they are a, they are a very good uh, side but it is relative weakness and I'm not saying I think a lot of people think therefore that I'm I'm saying well they have dominated sides who are so far inferior mm-hmm. that they'll be terrible I think what I mean is you know it's still a great achievement and I, I'm not trying to do it down maybe this isn't the moment to talk about this maybe this isn't the moment to have this reflection but. They are, you know, they're competing against a Manchester United team who weren't fantastic, <laughs> a Man City team who were on the way down. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, or, whoa! Or, or, well, I mean, you're, you're on the way down from the height of the previous season. That's that's clearly uh, clear, and weren't playing to the level that they were before. Arsenal, not nearly the challengers. Spurs, not nearly the challengers. Right, the problem is you can't, at the same time, you also can't then say, well, you know, you only you can only beat the opposition put in front of you. And I'm sure that the, this is the thing. I also think it goes the other way where it's like, well, there are lots of people who are saying, well, the Premier League isn't really, you know, it's not, not every team can win the league. And they seem to make out as if that means that, you know, it's not some sort of diverse <laughs> league. It's like, well, in which year can you name more than four sides or even three sides who actually have the possibility of winning it? And not just because, you know, if you look at that top four, even under Rafa Benitez for uh, three of those seasons, Liverpool were competitive, but they were part of the traditional top four. And we've only just recently started breaking all these ideas down. Yeah, but when football was less stratified economically, there you're, you're right in saying in any given year, it's not as if there were 20 teams competing for the league, but this... there was a varying of the 
of the teams that were during competing. the Premier League. Maybe no, not no, certainly not during the Premier League right. era, but prior okay. to that. Sorry, I guess I'm talking about that in in terms of the Premier League. The Premier League is this beast where it's like really you are only ever going to have. Well, I mean, you know, maximum of five teams competing for I guess. This season, for sure, Chris, was definitely a two-horse race. Liverpool-Man City, obviously, as Lauren said, Man City, their level somewhat dipped, whereas Liverpool, you know, we've spoken hundreds of times about how they're, they're a well-oiled machine at this point, at the peak of its power. They've won the league with seven games to go. How much do you, to what degree do you agree with Lawrence to the extent it's it's about Liverpool being at their peak, but also the other teams not being able to to compete to give them that competition? I, th- I think the truth probably rests a little bit in the middle, just because I, I was curious before we did this, how like the last decade before the Premier League was was in terms of competition, and it, it was largely dominated by Liverpool again. So I think there's there's been a sort of narrowing of the pathway, so to speak, in terms of the teams that can, can actually win this. Um, and the idea of even title races, I think, f- f- for what I can remember, which again is... is a little bit through the lens of the 90s and Newcastle and, and Arsenal, it, it's it's often been a two-horse race for the most part. Even that Leicester season, you, it was Spurs and Leicester. So I think we're not really a league that's built to have a diverse race in terms of the quantity of teams, but then also actually just the scope of who can actually win it. And I think that in itself is, is obviously a concern, um, but I think just the records that they broke in terms of how sustained their victories and that run of form was, that that is something I think you have to to actually admire because it was it was relentless and it was as Nico kind of alluded to, it was cast alongside the hundred point season that was Man City, which in itself felt like the breaking of, of a glass ceiling. So I think I think that's what to me stuck out as, as really impressive. Is not that City couldn't keep up with them; it was the fact that every time. City seemed to stumble one way or another. Liverpool just kept going. Just kept, it was almost like they weren't even watching them. That's the best way I can put it. And, and to me, that is incredibly impressive to watch. Whether they can recapture that next season, I think that will perhaps go further yeah. to defining I, what their legacy is. Maybe, yeah, maybe to add to that, I do feel like this Liverpool, like Nico says, I, I think this Liverpool team are doing something quite different to what other teams are doing, which is maybe why it feels a bit more special. And I think a lot of people are trying to discount what Liverpool is doing. Maybe I should be more affirmative in the way that I'm speaking rather than taking away from what Liverpool achieved, speak more. But the problem is I've almost been conditioned as a Liverpool fan at this point to, <laughs> to be not be proud of it because people are like, oh, you know, you're unbearable or whatever. It's like, well, you've got to have a couple of minutes or a little while where you can be a champion. Gloat. Be smart, and, yeah. And not even, not even gloat, but just be like, look, let's look at the achievement that this Liverpool team have actually had. And... You know, I was I was had to have a ridiculous conversation the other day when someone was talking to me about comparing Aaron Wan-Bissaka and um, <laughs> and fucking and Trent Alexander Arnold, and they were like, "Yeah, but I mean, you know, come on, Aaron Wan-Bissaka is a better fullback, isn't he?" And I was like, "No, I mean, literally no." Well, well, first of all, quite yeah, exactly. First of all, I was like, "Well, literally no," and actually, you know, we're <laughs> Manchester United staff who disagree with that. But then, secondly, Trent is also just a really good. I don't think he's the best in the world, but I think he's had a fantastic season. It's well, like, like that's you, okay. you, you've spoken to this as well, Lawrence. I think with um, the ownership group uh, in charge of Liverpool, you know, financially and stuff. Like, I think Liverpool. What's interesting about it too is like narrative 
whether we're talking about political issues or social issues or countries, or we're talking about football clubs, narrative is an extremely important, important thing to cultivate because it's how, you know, it's a neat tied up way as to how we understand how things happen. And you have said before, like there are certain players, there are certain decisions on the sporting side that have been made to fit a narrative that the, you know, Fenway sports group want to, um, perpetuate and that's consistent with the hiring of Jurgen Klopp with the use of certain players with whatever the case may be and I think that's what's that's what ties all this together for Liverpool so well is that when you look at Manchester City's success it's covered in this grime of shit where it's like Saudi Arabia money Pep Guardiola transfers (laughs) bullshit and it's like that's all true when you look at Liverpool, you can like escape this, like have this escapist fantasy of like, okay, they've used youth players. They are genuinely different tactically. They have like a different storyline. So it's like nice to You're see saying that. there's integrity to it, Nico. I mean, I'm not claiming that. They're <laughs> tied to an American sporting institution, no. which is like a <laughs> war mean, criminal. But, yeah. What? Um, how much of that integrity, Lawrence, would you ascribe to, to the open club? Because obviously, uh, <laughs> not to switch your words, Nico. It, it's, it's integrity, which I say is the only integrity we have left in the Premier League. Good, I agree. Liverpool are the bastion um, of good. We are the bastion of morality in the but Premier League. Is, Lawrence McLenna, direct quote, put it on the fucking title. Of there the is podcast. this, like... There is an aura about Jurgen Klopp that was there, and I know he's he's people talking about him as like the kind of guy you'd love to have as your dad. Do you know what I mean? He's got that that quality about yeah. him, and he's obviously yeah. been at the club for five years. I do feel like he has like an integrity about him and this aura that makes him easy to buy into, easy to believe in. He obviously wears his heart on his mm. sleeve. It's all about the emotion. What's it been like, kind of watching him, this figure, come into the club, kind of become so embedded? And so loved, and transform it in 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 this way over the past four seasons, four full seasons. I think the word transformation is very key in there uh, because you know, and that's this is something I spoke about a lot is he made the, uh, the the bold claims when he first came into the club, which I think a lot of people still kind of hold him to. And part of that was that people were disbelieving that he was able to do these things. But we're also, I think, you know, there's a there's a phrase from another podcast called The Rewatchables where they say, uh, although maybe we shouldn't be talking about The Ringer right now considering what's going on there. <laughs> um, I, it, it's more, it, and they talk about the apex mountain. Mm. And I think in many ways, this is the apex for, I mean, you know, in many ways I hope it isn't because I'd love to see him go on and do even better. But it, when you look back, I think sometimes you can even see that during that performance, you're like, wow, this is this person's peak here. You know, he spoke about in an indie article this week with, sorry, I can't remember who the writer was, but she's a very good writer. Melissa Reddy, that's it. Um, And uh, he was talking about how being a loser and all these kind of things had almost helped him and how being a loser was also not the end of his story, but, you know, losing is just part of life. And ultimately he'd learned to accept that. And it was the integrity which he had from, not forming an identity as only a winner um, that helped him get to this. <coughs> Just Mourinho. And I think, yeah, I didn't even see those subtle uh, digs, but I, I think <laughs> it's part of that as well, that there is this perfect cocktail of man there at the moment who that is like a little bit of cheese. There is a little bit of um, Mayonnaise. genuine heart. That I also think there is this perfect... <laughs> There is this perfect uh, mix of 
not only what he's saying, but also the body language, the demeanor, everything that goes along with it at mm-hmm. that same time. And I, I can't be overlooked how important that is. And I especially watch that because I'm someone who, you know, talks too long, probably <laughs> uh, says a lot of things. Like I, I look at him and I think, God, how can you be more like that? I think a lot of people also as humans mm-hmm. just look at him and go, there's something in your brain that's going, how can I be a bit more like that? How can I be closer to this person? Be a bit, be a bit, you know, more affable, be a bit more whatever Jürgen Klopp is. And as someone who often off puts people off with the way that I speak or the way that I am, you kind of, you realize the good side with Jürgen and you really appreciate that. And you think, God, how difficult that must be. And that is why I think so many people are drawing this pure conclusion from him because there seems to be, you can you, honestly, you look at his face and you can see the journey he's been on. Mm. Uh, not only uh, in terms of surgery, but also But also, you look at his eyes and, you know, it, it, you can just see this kind of and there's something there. Is, the story is written on, it, on his face. And I think, you know, that it's a combination of all the things I just said that make mm. him such an inspirational character. And it's not only that, but then it's also the players that he has, like Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, who must have an ego to perform at that level. Nico looks like he's absolutely dying at these comments. Um, who must have an ego to perform at that level, which you'd always assume of a striker or a winger, but at the same time are Muslims who pray five times a day and have extreme order in their life and don't seem to womanize in the way that are, and all these kind of things. And there are so many things that are at odds with the stories that we're told so often. <clears throat> Lover. And that's, that's what's confusing about these things. It's, it's, a, it's actually a bit of a confusing cocktail to look at because it almost shouldn't work. It almost should be that consistently Jurgen Klopp finishes second because he is a nice guy. All these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about Jurgen Klopp a lot, obviously. Uh, Chris and it feels like there is this kind of this perfect marriage between between coach and, and club and how how much or how important do you think the 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 club's business has been this on a structural level the recruitment club has obviously been backed in the transfer market so how much should we be giving how much credit should we be giving someone like Michael Edwards who's who's the sporting director of the club yeah I think I think he deserves a considerable amount there was a a, a fairly extensive piece in The Athletic about his journey through football, working with Harry Redknapp um, and, and just how he came to Liverpool and the influence he has had. I think the story that often gets told is the one about Mo Salah and, and Jurgen Klopp not necessarily really wanting Salah, preferring Julian Brandt, who obviously went on to play for, for Dortmund, is still there now. Um, and I, I just, it, it made me think of something a little bit further sort of back zoomed out that, that Lawrence had talked about before, which was the presence of the boot room at Liverpool and how this aspect that came to really define Liverpool's culture and its identity became outdated and became a bit of an anvil around the neck of the club because it, it held them back from moving into the modern era and the changes that came with it. And I just think something needed to replace that. And I can't help but think that maybe that was the problem that the time between that last league title and what we see now, there was just this vacuum of, of a new identity because it will always be Anfield, the special nights, you will have those things. But the truth is they won't win you a league title. I don't think they will give you the consistency you need. Whereas this approach where the plan was to skew younger towards players under 26 that had their prime to, to still be reached. That to me is something with a genuine 
identity behind it that they could harness and then bring into the new era with these players like Andy Robertson and things like that. And and Gary Neville kind of touched on that, I thought, tonight with Sky Sports when he talked about the fact that Klopp has taken a number of £30 million players and made them into £130 million players, whereas some of his rivals have done the opposite. I think that that's a little bit sensationalist, but I think the, the kernel of the point that he's making is true. And some of that will relate to to what Edwards has done with the scouting department and the recruitment, which, to be fair, under Brendan Rodgers, was often a stick to beat Liverpool with. It was something that was seen as uh, a sort of pseudoscience, if you will, in terms of the numbers men have, have got on their laptop and found another player again. It's also that I think the face of that was less convincing. And to add to that, I mean, you know, the, like you say, Salah is the perfect example of that. You know, he was at Chelsea. He was seen as a failure at Chelsea. Everyone called him a failure at Chelsea. And the same happened with Kevin De Bruyne at Chelsea as well. And now both those guys are basically the two best players in their positions in the league. I mean, maybe, maybe I don't, I think a lot of people also struggle to define what Salah's actual position is. But it does come down, there is that feeling almost of a bit of a Pep Guardiola and Klopp share a similar demeanor with the likes of a, Steve Jobs-esque type kind of character where it's very easy for us to sit back and pontificate about these simple overarching things uh, that Klopp and Pep Guardiola and all these guys have put together. But it, 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 it required an incredible amount of forethought and vision from Klopp in order to get this simplicity, in order to get to this level. And it's almost like years of honing that have come to this point. That's what I was going to say, Nico, because I mean, when you look at the squad now, it's incredible and it it, it kind of feels like it, it was fully formed. But as Lawrence is saying at the time when these purchases were made, when, when Klopp was making these decisions, it, it wasn't obvious. Lawrence points to Salah there, who was seen as a failure at Chelsea. I'm thinking about Mane, who came from Southampton when they paid 30, 34 million pounds for him. That was being ridiculed. When Van Dijk was brought in, that was lambasted, the fee they paid. When Nathaniel Klein was moved on, they didn't sign anyone in his place. They brought through Trent Alexander-Arnold. That was seen as a questionable decision. But yet, as Lawrence says, it's incredible foresight and incredible management from the club on many levels to assemble this this machine. For sure. At the same time, I think you have to sort of look at it with the idea, with, try to zoom out a little bit, because we do this with any title winner and with any successful club. We take everything that has that has worked and we maybe overlook or don't talk about the things that haven't worked, which isn't to say there's a there's an abundance of that when it comes to Liverpool, but rather to say that, you know, I think the if you talk about the Virgil van Dyke situation in particular, it's not that the signing of Virgil van Dyke was lambasted. It was the price that they paid, right? And so there's a very specific sort of story that's told and retold about that specific situation where it's they were going to get Virgil van Dyke or they weren't going to get a center back at all. And I think it's that latter part of that situation that should be focused on as opposed to the purchase of the actual player. Obviously, it's the case that Virgil van Dyke is an exceptional, if not the best central defender in the world. That's without a doubt true. But like many clubs tend to do, and Liverpool have been guilty of in the past and Spurs as well, there is this anxiety of when you have purchase, when you have money or whatever uh, to purchase a bunch of different players or replace a position or whatever the case may be. You have to have a co- consistent and co- cogent and, you know, whatever plan put together as to how these things are structured and keep to that as opposed to panicking and, and whatever. And like you say, that, that, that 
shows or that is evidence towards of a plan that was made in advance. And that's the significant thing I think people can take away from it. They planned ahead. <laughs> that they did plan ahead. More kill. than one season. Well, just to, to, to kind of go back to that legacy point, uh, Lawrence, because I think it's really interesting mm-hmm. to hear your kind of view of this team almost and, and thinking about how they'll be remembered. They still could break the 100 points record. They've still got to play Manchester City, Arsenal, Chelsea, of course. But even if they don't achieve it, I mean, do you think, to what degree can we talk about them as one of the greats from your opinion? Because I feel like the the dominance, as we spoke about, the the records they're breaking, they led the table by 25 points at one point, which is a record between a side in, in first and second. They could break the record for the most wins if they if they beat 32. It could be the biggest winning margin if, if they extend it to 19 points. How do you think this team could be remembered? Keep going. Um, it's, well, that's what I mean. It's incredible. The amount of records they're breaking, that they're, they're setting. It's The dominance is, it feels like something we haven't haven't seen, albeit in a context of a, a league that perhaps isn't as strong in terms of the competitors. Yeah, I get that side. I, I mean, I, I think, again, maybe it's about being more affirmative at a time when you've just become champions <laughs> than it is about being negative. Hmm. Um, and, well, you know, did luck play a role in that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, I mean, there is also, there is a bit of an element with this as well of it being like Liverpool were sharpening a, a pencil or sharpening, you know, their their sword for quite a long time. Um, mm. And it, it felt similar for the fans as well. And I think you see that in this process, which is why I'm also saying it's very, when we're picking out all these things, of course, there's something very special about it. I also think we are, somewhat and you know I hadn't really experienced this as a Liverpool fan but I kind of had empathy for a Man City fan now (laughs) who had to go through so many people going yeah it's good but (laughs) and we're kind of in the yeah it's good but era and it's like can't can we never just sit back and just go this is what I mean though does this not feel different because I feel like most fans, I'm sure Manchester United fans will disagree with me, but most, <laughs> as I say, can't begrudge Liverpool the excess because they are so likeable, because of the coach, because of the players, because they have been so dominant, because they have been so entertaining. That's envy, it's though, like, I think a lot of people are think? salty or envious. I yeah. just think it's unbelievable. Like, I have no... Last season in the Champions League final, very different. This season, Liverpool in the league fully deserve to win. But does that sort of, like, but you know, sort of asterisks to any title happen outside of the Premier League era when it is perceived that accomplishments and trophy winning are more akin to the accomplishments and and ability of individual players and coaches as opposed to, you know, the crazy money that's in the game. Like, you know, it's still like I was watching. I was telling Adam, I was watching something last night about Jurgen Klopp and like they mentioned he's done it on a net spend of only 100 million. Like that's still a fuck ton of money. That's still a lot of money to be having around. And it's not in comparison to Manchester City. What's Man City's net spend? No, exactly. No, exactly. For sure. <laughs> I'll hold my hands up. But like, does that what so about, about is, um, for like, <laughs> you know, does that happen when sport isn't? In the age of late capitalism, I did say it. But this is that's what I mean. This feels like one of the rare... I understand the context of the league we're in and, and the modern game. But this kind of does feel... It's not pure. That's, that's the wrong word. But there is... <laughs> I feel there's something that could be celebrated beyond just the fans of Liverpool. Let, let me just throw to Chris. What do you think of this assessment? Am I wrong in saying that you know this Liverpool side should and are being championed beyond the city of Liverpool and, and their fans? And secondly, we're talking about the legacy. A lot has been made about how this this team are the English, the European, the world champions right now. 
What do you think is next for them? Do they need to do? Do they need to show more consistency, win this title back to back, for example, in order to cement their places as one of these all time great sides? Um, yes, yeah, I think they're being championed outside of Liverpool. I think that's the global nature of the game these days. Um, I think there's something also very likable about Jurgen Klopp. I think I think there's something that's very relatable about him as well. Um, I think with with Guardiola, there's a sense of, and I sometimes feel like this with the Messi and Ronaldo debate, where it feels like with Guardiola, there's an inherent brilliance that no one can kind of get or grasp because of where he came through and all of the education that he's had. Whereas Klopp, it feels like someone who I, I, I can't necessarily articulate it outside of just, he's a bit more of an everyman. He, he feels like someone that we can relate to as, as layman. Um, I think in terms of their Thank legacy you, and what they um, say again, speak for yourself. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, th- I think in terms of their legacy, it has to be consistency. I, th- I think they've won the Champions League, they've won the Club World Cup. Um, I think, you know, had the schedule not been so crazy, you could almost guarantee they'd be in the last stages of the FA Cup now as well. Hmm. Um, so I think realistically, every time I, I see the people that have won the Premier League several times talk, they do lean on that consistency angle. Um, and I think it's it's already, we've not even finished this Premier League, I'm already quite excited for next season and to see how that comes to the fore because I don't think City are going to stand still and yet they've potentially lost Leroy Sané to Bayern Munich so they have to recover with that. And, and that is the, I guess, the fun of the Premier League at the minute really is, is that both these teams have constructed something that feels totally alien to what we've seen before, a consistency that is almost robotic. And yet now they're going to smash together again next season and we have to watch that. I think that will be... We get to watch it, Chris. But you know what I mean? It's, 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 at the same time, I think, look, even if, even if this Liverpool team does not win the Premier League ever again, I think the nature of Liverpool as a club Whoa. means they will always be very fondly thought of. I, I think they've just, they've just got that that they've just got that way about them. I think they're a they for me, Liverpool are a wonderful storytelling club. I think that's something they've always had sort of built in with them, um, and so yeah, this this team will be. Um, I want to say lionized. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but they will be fondly thought of um, for forever just because of what they have done. And, and that, you know, that's what I think was attached to some of the narrative about 30 years of hurt. George Colkin wrote a pretty good piece about, you know, 30 years of hurt with a couple of European Cups. I think you wake <laughs> yeah. up in there. It wasn't too bad, yeah. was it? Yeah. I, 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 I've often reminded people of that. It's like when, when you know, I mean, the, the main problem is as well, there are people who uh, obviously read these things or are new to football. And they must clearly be new to football because they, you know, they, they speak as if Liverpool haven't won the Champions League a couple of times in there, like you're saying. And what Lawrence I, is saying is not I, all Liverpool fans. Not all Liverpool is. I mean, it's also just the other side that I think. How, how can I put this? Um, we haven't had it that bad, and also I think <laughs> because in every era, and it's weird. You can be listening to the radio, and for some weird reason it can really rile you up, whatever that person is saying. And, or you can be watching the kickoff or you can be listening to this podcast. And for some weird reason, if you disagree, right, 
you will weirdly feel that you have to uh, in some way correct that person. And it's like, listen, it really doesn't matter what that person thinks if you disagree. And it doesn't matter if you disagree in that sense. But for some weird reason, we whip people up into this frenzy that there has to be this one essential truth that Liverpool are either this great loved team by the entire nation and everyone must love them or everyone must hate them. And there's no in between. No, no, there's no in between. But yeah, you obviously you say that as a reasonable person. No, okay, I agree with I. But th- <laughs> this goes back to the point that we were talking about before, and the point that I'm trying to bring up every podcast essentially, or have been, which is, again, we talk about this idea of purity. We talk about the money that's in the game and how that affects our conception of whether something is pure or not. We talk. Mm-hmm. We were mentioning like, does that happen outside of the Premier League era? You make the astute observation that yes, it's different kinds of football. But again goes back to the question does this level of football this insanely fast-paced athletic um you know tactically astute hyper realization of football happen without the money that's present so it's a nuanced conversation to have about like the role of sport and the ethical Mm -hmm. ambiguity of it but this idea that liverpool cannot be universally loved or that they have to be exists also within the economic context which it exists and i don't mean to go on but that's the case. <laughs> I'm just loving this team. I, I, I love this team. I love Jurgen Klopp. Bolt, Bolt was literally just like, all Bolt wanted to hear was, yeah, I love this team. Too. <laughs> yeah. And we were all like, yeah, but it, from, from a Marxist perspective. <laughs> yeah. Nico has mentioned <laughs> communism again. Time to mute the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me, an intellectual. Um, no, look, it's just, just to finish up on Liverpool, uh, I mean, you spoke about earlier, uh, looking forward to, to next season, and almost a concern. Are you, are you sort of saying this, does it feel like a culmination to you or does this feel like the, the beginning of a next step? Like, what are you expecting to see from Liverpool now? Jürgen Klopp's already, already spoken about how he feels he doesn't need to strengthen this team so much next season. They're still going to be at the summit of the Premier League. They're still going to be favourites. Mm, it kind of, worries, kind of worries me that those words come back to haunt certain manner. I mean, you know, maybe... Jürgen is not that kind of manager. Mm. Um, but there will always be a point where if your team does begin to drop away, then it does become a bit of an issue. Um, I think there are the beginnings of uh, the next generation of Liverpool. And, you know, I, I had this uh, conversation with, you know, venerated England player and, uh, you know, England golden generation. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kieran Dyer. I said, you know, I think Liverpool will move Trent Alexander-Arnold into another position. He respectfully disagreed. Midfield, Um, did you say? I said midfield. The worst opinion of all time. He he mocked me. Um, He mocked me consistently for minutes, uh, or at least what I I, I I could only assume was mocking. Is Um, is that because you were wrong, Lawrence? Well, it's either wrong or it's that he just didn't agree with the premise of Trent Alexander-Arnold being a good football player and therefore mm. being able to play out of that position is, right. as far as he can. No, um, no, no. He also, also the idea for an think, autograph in 2005, so he's definitely not coming on this show, I can tell you that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, the funny, the funny thing is, I do think Liverpool have a couple of plans as to how to transition this team. And I do think, I, the other side is, I feel like obviously there's a narrative of missing out on Timo Werner. There's the narrative of missing of out on a Jaden Sancho. There's also the narrative that while you're staying still, everyone else is improving. And if everyone else is improving, I guess the, the, if there's anyone who's good at managing narrative, it's Jurgen Klopp. Um, I guess there are the, it, the problem will be 
not if Jurgen Klopp can manage the narrative around him and his team. Mm-hmm. It's that I don't think he can manage the narrative about, around FSG and those guys not investing outside of when Coutinho money, in inverted commas, is available. And I think that is what might ultimately be the stumbling block for Liverpool, that maybe the fans become a little bit impatient and go, okay, when it comes to us calling on you to spend money, which is outside of, you know, living within your means of only spending a hundred million, you know, net, (laughs) um, you know, that could be the stumbling block. I actually, I I do still believe in this team. It's, you know, it is a great side. They've still got years ahead of them. I think they're fantastic. But it's it's the the other things around it that I think are the issue, and I think that lack of investment uh, can either be justified or not. I don't know, but but we will see very soon whether not investing in Timo Werner will trip Liverpool up. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Elsewhere today, you may have seen reports about the results of a study that essentially focuses on racial bias in football commentary. The study found that players with lighter skin are regularly praised for intelligence, work ethic and quality compared with those with darker skin who are reduced to physical and athletic attributes. So just to give a bit of context, the study was conducted by a Danish firm called Run Repeat in association with the PFA. It found that 62.6% of praise regarding a player's intelligence was aimed at those with lighter skin, while 63.3% of criticism for a player's intelligence was aimed at those with darker skin. The findings also show that 60% of praise for work rate was directed at lighter skinned players so obviously this was receiving a lot of publicity today nico obviously it's a study which is very timely and i think while its findings aren't exactly shocking what it does do is it takes something that was essentially anecdotal and crystallizes it making it clear it is a real issue and one that needs to be addressed yeah 100 percent. i think that's that's part of the advantage that you have with statistics or some amalgamation of statistics but equally at the same time like like you said, to us, to people on this podcast, and hopefully to people who listen to this podcast, um, mm. that is something that's not particularly shocking. We uh, This discussion was had in, at the beginning of the 2018 World Cup as well, when people really started to notice, okay, like when, we, when there are com- commentators talking about African teams, they are not saying the same things that they talk about when they talk about European nations or nations that are comprised of largely Caucasian players. Um, 
so it's not necessarily new and it's not necessarily shocking to people of a certain viewpoint, but at the same time, it is, like you said, it's important to put that down into a concrete way that people can understand and then attack at the same time. Um, you know, there was a conversation. I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast yet or whatever the case may be, or if we talked about this specific viewpoint of it, but the Frank Lampard video as well. Um, I had a few responses to the tweet that I posted around it and saying that it was a classic example of Frank Lampard not understanding white privilege. That but What's the Frank okay, Lampard video just for people who aren't? aware. Yeah. So basically, Raheem Sterling has made a number of comments regarding uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and racial bias that exists within the coaching community in England, as well as football as a whole. And Frank Lampard, Frank Lampard essentially said, while I believe Raheem is brave or whatever the case um, for speaking about these issues that should have been spoken about a long time ago, it's not true in this case. In my case, where I was hired at Chelsea with one year of experience and almost no coaching badges, it's not true. I've gotten here on merit, which is a textbook example of how not to understand privilege, because even if he did have the coaching badges, there are a variety of things that he's aware of and unaware of that played into him be being hired as such. But the thing I wanted to touch on about the commentary thing was I got some responses from that from people um, saying that, well, there are people in the game, there are black players in the game, there are players of color in the game that maintain an advantage as a player of color, and they're simply not doing enough to exercise that. And I think it brings up an interesting viewpoint to talk about how players are talked about from a commentary perspective, because I think I'm, I can speak for myself here comfortably, but also I think we've done it on the podcast as well as we, we experience it, is how many times have we talked about Chabi Alonso and how good of a coach he might be based on how he plays the game and who he is as a player? Have we said the same things about black players? Have we said the same thing about players that play the same position? You know, when I was thinking about sort of the conception of this, I think someone like N'Golo Kante in the way that he plays the game with the readability that he has, with the intelligence that he has to um, maintain in order to play the position as well as he had for a number of years, I have rarely, if ever, seen him seen him mentioned in that conversation. And so while one might say like, well, okay, well, that's not important, We've we've spoken about this issue before, and it's this idea that if no if there's no basis for which you can put yourself in a position for which you can supplant yourself in a specific role, then it takes a lot more for you to imagine yourself to be able to accomplish something that is outside of the typical stereotypical societal norms. So if there's you know. It, the, the idea that black players who maintain an advantage as black players are not doing enough to maintain coaching roles is misguided because it doesn't understand the nuance of white players and white players of a certain distinction are talked about as excellent future coaches where black players who maintain the same attributes, who maintain the same qualities are not spoken of as such. So the mental pathway doesn't exist in our minds or their minds to say like, okay, maybe, well, I can go for that after my career ends, or I can do this, or I can do that. And it doesn't exist on the other end of the equation as well, where somebody says, I'm receptive to that, as opposed to opening the door to someone like Frank Lampard or Chubby Alonso, or whatever the case may be. I think why this, this feels so important, Lawrence, is it's interesting what Nico touches on there, because I think it has broad implications in terms of the representation of ethnic minorities. It was interesting to see Jason Lee today, who's the PFA's equalities executive, talk about how 
to address the real impact of, of structural racism, you have to acknowledge and address racial bias in something like football commentary and discuss the unconscious bias there in order to, to get to and tackle the, the real issues. This is kind of a, a pathway to do that in a way. I, you, know, you know what? I think it, it's it, it's also kind of gone beyond that as well. And I think I'm also kind of um, bored of the performative uh, corporate level of this as well, where people mm-hmm. are paying it lip service and kind of going, yeah, we really need to do something about this. Let's do something, you know? And, you know, I think that's really important. Um, and I, you know, I think there is an important element in that, but we, we also tend to get stuck at that point very often. Um, and I also think we tend to get a little stuck up our own asses in terms of um, speaking about, uh, and again, maybe I should be more, uh, you know, positive, um, but I, we, we get a little stuck up our own asses when it comes to talking about this kind of stuff. And I, I guess when it comes to people like that, I'm like, okay, I get it. But we, we need to have an honest conversation as well about where some of these, um, uh, where some of these uh, evaluations come from and how to actually speak accurately about people. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what uh, the, the, the PC need to talk about people, everyone in a very specific way I think also gets in the way of this right now and allows those actual racists to make the opposite argument where they go, oh, you want everyone to be referred to as powerful. You want, And there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how things are going on right now. Like it's okay to say that a black person is powerful if that black person is powerful. That's not what's being argued here. But at the, at the same time, I've seen a... at, at the same time, I, I think you're correct in saying that. Like we, we, you know, that that's part of it. Like there but is, the, a, there j- is. A... Can I can just if, if I can just finish that point? Yeah, though, yeah. I think if you if, if I don't make the rest of that point, that makes me sound like I'm making that point. Mm-hmm. And actually, what I'm saying is, it's, it's okay to say that. But that's uh, let's be absolutely clear. That's the conversation I've seen happen on Twitter today, where people are setting up this PC straw man of that, and then arguing against this PC argument, which isn't being made. And that's, and that is happening all the time. And at, at the corporate level, we are almost causing that to happen. And I don't feel the system is set up properly. So it's all well and good. These people up in the boardrooms going, yeah, we really need to do something. We really need to change uh, things. I don't actually think that what they're doing and the words they're saying are helping anyone. I actually think that, um, we are getting in our own way to some extent with the way that we're uh, the way that we're talking about players and actually the the pc need on a corporate level to only have people who speak in a certain way to only have people who say certain phrases and you know do things by the book is kind of getting in the way of having an honest and open conversation in society about what race is right now and it leaves me like i'll say on this podcast I, i probably wouldn't say it on any other platform but like I looked at myself today and was like, yeah, you've described black guys as powerful. You've described, you know, black players as, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess I acknowledged that at the time and to acknowledge it again is important. But then there's also that fear inside me being like, hold on, if someone picks up on that, then they go, right, well, he can't work with us on a corporate level because, you know, we we can't have someone who's done said this or done that. 
I think that really is getting in the way of things. And it also plays into the actual racist hands at this point. I think you're I think you're make some great points with regards to that. And like there is a sort of corporate sterilized idea of like what should and shouldn't be done. But at the same time, I think exactly what you just said is the point of talking about these things. It's not as if, like you said, mm. I have examined myself in the way that I talk about these things and I will hopefully continue to do so. And I think at the very fundamental base, whatever else happens, which you're right in saying, like, there are consequences that are maybe unnecessary, or there are things that happen that don't help the problem. And there's a straw man argument that can be made with regards to these PC sensitivity issues. At the same time, I think the entire point of talking about a study like that is not to say, like, it's not as if we have that study, and then we go, okay, well, now we know, and it can be fixed. It's simply about looking at ourselves and saying, how do I talk and do I think about how does my language of how I conceive of the world inform the way that I view certain players and certain people? And is that is that has it in some way been implicit in a system of subvert or, you know, implicit racism? And and that's the converse. That's it. I think at a fundamental level is all that is is being asked is to revise yeah, what we're talking think- about. Yeah, and I, I think maybe I was mixing two points up there, but actually what I've seen today, and like you were saying with Frank Lampard, is I've seen a lot of false arguments being made against about why this isn't the issue or yeah. you know, why this is ridiculous. And Because the same thing happens here in the States. The same thing happens here in the States with like PC movements with regards to certain things. Like you'll see on Fox News, they have a headlining story talking about how supposedly we need to call snowmen snow people. And then you give actual racists (laughs) and actual people on that side of the argument ammo to say that like they're trying to take over and, and thought police. That's the number one thing they go to. But that's not what it's about. It's simply about analyzing ourselves and saying, what am I doing and is it contributing and how can I go about trying to change that over time, I think. What, what do you make of it, Chris? Because I think there is – I, th- I think I agree with you guys in that this, the, the reason the study is important because it makes some people reflect on their own behavior and acknowledge it and look to, to change it in a positive way. I think the pressure that puts on organizations like – the Premier League have said they're going to investigate the report's findings. We've seen BT Sport come out and say, you know, they're going to hold cultural sensitivity and unconscious bias training. Sky Sports uh, are already holding sessions on that in conjunction with the PFA and kick it out. So like I said, this makes the issue real. It makes the issue something that's being discussed. And crucially, in the environment that creates, it means action is taken, which we're already seeing. Yeah, I think regardless of intent it is a bad thing obviously um i think it's more lazy than sinister in a lot of instances um, Agreed. especially when it comes to to the world cup where i think it's, it's it's just simply a case of the people in these positions maybe aren't able to to learn about every single player and it's it's very easy to to fall on those tropes that have served you well in the past um and i just think that it's about evolving the conversation, not just in commentary and the way that we analyse the game, but actually that will help us in, for example, the the aspect that Raheem Sterling talks about. Because I think it's difficult for Frank Lampard because he has come from a position of privilege. And speaking personally for a second, I had an instance where someone I was close to came from quite an affluent background 
And they had a very hard time acknowledging their privilege because they felt like it was a slight against their hard work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we wouldn't talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and and what I said to that person was that those two things can 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 exist in the same sphere. And and for for Lampard, yes, he has undeniably worked hard. I think what he has to understand is he went to Ipswich Town, I think it was and rejected that opportunity because he didn't feel like it was the right one. And I think they got relegated that year, so good eye on that. But if that's Sol Campbell, for example, if that is, I'm trying to think of of other players, but unfortunately that highlights part of the problem that a lot of black coaches don't feel comfortable going into that sphere. If it was Sol Campbell, instantly people will feed that into the narrative that Sol Campbell is a bit aloof, a bit weird, all that kind of thing. Why is he being so choosy? We keep saying, you know, we want more black coaches, but if they won't take opportunities, what more can we do? For it helps construct a really bad situation. And I think that's where f- specifically Frank has to be a bit more self-aware about the very fortunate position that he has, that even when it came to Derby, it was Harry Redknapp that rang up, I think it was Mel Morris, and said, I think Frank would be great for this. If you don't have those people, and, and to be very candid... I think this is a little bit true in sports media as well. If you don't have those people who are willing to pick up a phone and and vouch for you, it's not really even I think about who you know. It's about who's willing to say they know you. That, to me, is what really influences this. And that's where we have to, I think, do so much work in not just changing the conversation, but changing the setup here so that we don't just rely on, on these long-standing relationships and I, and I think that's something where I noticed the Athletic have just advertised for a, um, an inclusion officer of some kind to try and diversify their talent that's where if it if it means a, a job has to be created or a position or a role has to put in the hard yards to that I'm all for that if the outcome is worth it and it gets the people into these positions but I think Lawrence is right we can't do these tokenism sort of these these false gestures about you know let's do this let's do it and then nothing because that i think that will not only frustrate those people that have been left out but i think actually it will further impact the next generation in a negative way when i think there is such an appetite for change amongst not just ourselves but those people coming up now as well i also think adam just to add just to, to kind of put a point on that it's really important that people are seeing um are seeing you know people they can respect in those kind of positions i feel a little bit sorry for sol campbell in a sense because i actually think you know that sol's had a very up and down career anyway to to put it uh kindly in terms of management and he's now being picked out as the example that we use every time that we want to talk about a a, a black man in management Mm -hmm. and it actually it allows people an argument both ways because people go, well, he wasn't given the opportunity, but people also go, well, a 22% win record at wherever the hell he was, you know, this guy. It, it creates like two sets of uh, straw men on either end of the argument. And ultimately, again, ends up focusing on something that Nico will enjoy here. You know, more people with a different kind of privilege to one that's based around race. So it's a financial privilege instead of a racial privilege. And so we're still talking about a a millionaire. We're still talking about a guy who's actually done exceptionally well in his life. And actually, we're also talking about someone who I've seen 
I've seen, I, I've been to a speech with um, Sol Campbell's agent before, and the panel was made up of Sol Campbell's agent, Joey Barton, and some airhead from somewhere else, right? And they were all idiots. They were all saying to the kids how important it was that Sol Campbell had made the decision to move for the money and for himself, and that you should always do that. And I just remember thinking, like, this is such an empty thing. This is such an empty exercise to be telling teenage boys, like, you know, Sol Campbell is the guy that we're holding up here. I was like, there are so many other great examples of people. Why are we only using Sol Campbell? And I realized we have very, very few uh, good examples. What I'm saying is, it, when we're talking about racism, it isn't, we, we need to expand the conversation outside of going, does Sol Campbell have a job now? Like, it's, it goes beyond that. And it goes to, like, the idea that there are going to be young black men watching who don't want to be a professional coach, but want to be a, a coach of their, of a weekend club, or want to be all these kind of things. And, the, and we're only seeming to focus on, like, five to 20 positions, which are exceptionally high-end positions for multi-millionaires to work in. And we seem to be missing the point about actual football because, again, we're in the Premier League era where it's like, it only, only where the money is made does it matter. And I think that often means that we lose what's actually happening and why racism in football is actually a problem. It's not just about people racially abusing Raheem Sterling, whilst that is a problem. It is also about the people who see that, the kids who see that, the kids who are young black guys who are also singing that, all these different issues. But we seem to get a bit sidetracked on this corporate idea of it. I guess that's the overall point I'm trying to make, which is really bad. But <laughs> we get we get we get sidetracked on these corporate ideas of like if we fix the corporation, everything else will follow. And it just seems so insincere to me, is what I'm saying. And it seems a little bit Wall Street, where it's like, hey, if we fix Wall Street, the economy will follow. Well, guess what? Fuck with. In this time, it's actually not followed at all. And if anything, they've managed to separate the two. So what we've actually learned is they basically went, build us a raft and we'll take you with us. And then when they're on the raft, they're going, we'll come back for you. That's how it works. Hmm. I agree with what you say to an extent. I just feel like this study makes it black and white, so to speak. Um, yeah, sorry about the study. It's actually a great study is, is what I meant to say. Sorry. Sorry, the answer could have been five yeah. words. Sorry. And... I feel like when an issue is clear, when it becomes an issue that's discussed and talked about in society, there's pressure on institutions to act and to follow that, that discussion. And then there's pressure on institutions and, and politicians to act as a result of that. It kind of feels like a bit of a, a domino in a way. We've seen that in recent weeks and months with regards to the Black Lives Matter movement, the change is happening and it comes about because of the discussions that are happening, the the intensity of them, which forces the hand of, of organizations and institutions in a way. And specifically with regards to this study, the fact that the overwhelmingly positive ratio of comments about the intelligence of lighter-skinned players compared to darker-skinned players, I think... As I said before, this, that has broader implications on society in terms of how ethnic minorities are represented. The, the football is the world's game. It's the most watched sport in the world. And the way that the players are talked about 
is incredibly important at reinforcing certain stereotypes and certain uh, cliches that I think needs to be needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be tackled. Well, not well, not to not to get you know metaphysical about it, but it is you <laughs> know for <laughs> you know the the philosophy of language is something that I've engrossed myself in for the past two years and. The length, you know, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Tell your writing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the the limits of my language are the limits of my world, and that that is seems like sort of a platitude and, and a fun thing to to put on, you know, Twitter buyer or something. But it is true in the sense that like language is how we construct our reality. You have an idea of a pair of headphones or a computer or a more complex concept, and that is all dictated by language. So it is an important study, and it is important to think about how we speak of certain things because that is where you. I think Lawrence is right in saying like you know, they have, not only do they have a financial economic benefit to purifying themselves morally and putting more black people and putting more people of color in positions of power to save themselves so that people continue to patronize them as an institution, talking about the Premier League, but also, you know, you solve those issues, you you solve those issues at at a greater level in the weekend club in seemingly in inconsequential conditions um, when you talk about like finances by changing the language. And I think that is, is the key is that how you, how you speak about things informs how you think about them. And so you, we need to reevaluate how we speak about things at a fundamental level. Just podcast is so important, Bob Yes. Just before we finish up, before we go, um, how do you want to speak about Leroy Sane leaving Manchester City, Nico? Uh, I'm I'm extremely sad. <laughs> Treacherous it's dickhead, am I right? 40, that's the, only way that's that the appropriate language. Yeah. Changing but, um, gears from social issues yeah. to Leroy Sane. <laughs> I think it's a uh, smooth it's transition. But I did want to get me uh, get your thoughts just before we leave because. Um, it's come out today. He's he is joining Bayern Munich. It's been confirmed. Forty-one million, I think, is the fee, which could increase to fifty odd million. Um, Nico, sad. Oh. You put in the uh, in the show notes there. Yeah, I am sad. I think he's a, a a tremendous player. He had he has such ability, such potential, um, because he's so gifted in his abilities. Like he he's like a classic winger in the sense that he can just ice it like when that's why he worked so well in the Pep Guardiola system is, you know, obviously the five across the front and it allowed him to isolate defenders. And when you're one, you're when you're one-on-one going against Leroy Sané, and I think Trent Alexander Arnold can speak to this. You get fucking put on toast. Like you get put on skates. That's what happens. Um, So I'm, it's not not in the champions league. (laughs) Am I right? Um, So, you know, when, I'm very sad to see him go because I think he's a tremendous player. I think there were differences in how um, he wanted to be used. And I don't necessarily blame him for wanting to experience a different situation. I will immensely miss him and his ridiculous back tattoo at Manchester (laughs) City. And I wish him the best. It feels strange, Chris, to see a player of Sané's quality leaving Manchester City uh, instead of joining and leaving for another elite European club. Yeah, um, I think the way this has gone down will frustrate them a lot. Um, I saw, I think it was Miguel Delaney said that Sane had turned up late for training a number of times. Friend of the podcast. He he wasn't super convinced. Definitely an acquaintance. um, That that Guardiola. 
to be clear, I do like Miguel. I get on with him. <laughs> lovely guy. Lovely um, guy. Yeah. Just, just in case, you never know. Um, but no, he's he, a good guy. Yeah. He said that Guardioli didn't think would be too cut up about him leaving. Um, I think in terms of a replacement, the the two options that jump out to me instantly, I saw Jack Grealish linked, um, and I think he works best on the left. Different type yeah, of player, I think. Um, and then Bukayo Saka, who is, I think, on the, just about on the, the cusp now of the last year of his Arsenal contract, that he, I, I think he struggled to agree fresh terms with them. You know, sort of that to me would, would be a, an instantly... Um, Good option because also as well he's got that versatility. I, I, I'm, I'm, I think long term for England, Bakayo Saka will most likely go back to left back. Um, but watching him the other day for us in a more advanced position ahead of Tierney, he looked very good. Um, so I think City are fortunate that they, I think, are very efficient in the transfer market. They've they've managed to avoid the potholes a lot of times with their deals, which I don't think you could necessarily have said in the early uh, part of this era, if you will, the Mansour era. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll be fine. The frustration is there, obviously, but it, you have to get some things wrong. You can't be flawless in these things. I would like to ask Chris, or or maybe, sorry, uh, to ask Chris or the podcast in general, like, that is a crazy fee for Sané in terms of, like, it seems like a bargain, but is this, like, what, yeah, what, like, indication is this of a post-corona market um that's a good one that because i think the the hakimi fee was another one where you think how much of that has been influenced by corona he's he's going to enter it looks like for 45 million euros or has gone already I, I don't know where that was at officially um but but that is a is a great fee i think for for a very talented fullback i think from everything i had read i don't know if man city's finances forensically but it didn't seem as if nobody does. This was a case. <laughs> it didn't seem as if they they desperately needed to sell. It was more a case of I think he's in the final twelve months of his deal, um, so let's just see what we can get rather than losing him for free. Um, in fact, there was an interesting thread by Swiss Ramble about amortization and and how clubs account for transfers. I was that I would say, encourage yeah. to, to go and look at that will perhaps explain some of this, that it's it's not necessarily about, oh, let's just get every penny. It's more the fact that this will look very good on the accounts, mm. the way that they do this to get that fee. Um, it, well, can, we, can, we speak to, can we speak about Barcelona and Juve's amazing transfer business? That's, that's this exactly it, wasn't it, Christian? It's the, yeah, the that idea was... that Pjanic is going to come to Barcelona and Arthur's going to go the opposite way to Juventus, both valued at, I think, around 60 million euros. Uh, maybe, yeah. but uh, it, it is cash going in both ways, right? Like it's not nobody does player swaps anymore, right? No, but th- that was the whole sort of uh, basis of this thread was that by structuring the deal this way, even though it's essentially, I think, by structuring yeah. the deal in this way, they're both paying full transfer fees. They can can write them up as profits, which essentially looks good on the books, right, Chris? Am I, am I yes, that? that's that's correct. Yeah, um, and. It's it's an interesting way to look at it. I, th- I think maybe T4 had done a video on this. I know Jake Cohen's talked about it as well. There's a few people that have tried to explain it. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that factored into things as well um, in terms of, of trying to make the accounts look a little bit better yeah. as well. Can I see all sorts of weird and wonderful deals this summer where <laughs> clubs are trying to make the accounts uh, look all nice I and rosy. I wouldn't be shocked if – I wouldn't actually be shocked, sorry, to say uh, – 
that I wouldn't be shocked if there were more swap deals actually for that reason. I think you might see, I wouldn't go as far as an NBA model, but I think an instance where more teams will just prefer to get players off, off that wage bill and, and reconstruct. Because you already see with Man United, for example, saying that, that they won't pay more than 50 million for Sancho. To mm. me, that is very early and not very subtle posturing to say like... <laughs> just you wait. They're not very yeah, realistic, you know, um, you're what, what, they're, what they're saying is we won't, pay more, we won't pay more than 50 million for Sancho, but we will throw in McTominay. <laughs> uh, or, and they, will, they, they won't pay it, but they will send John O'Shea. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be gratefully received, I'm sure. We'll um, send a Alex Ferguson journey no more. That is this week's podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Lawrence, we'll let you get back to, to fatherhood now. I'm going to go and uh, remain awake. <laughs> Chris, thank you very much. I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah, Nico, you're staying awake. <laughs> I'm staying woke, Adam. I think that's what you'll find in this podcast. Wow. I'm okay. staying yeah. woke, of course. He's so fucking Marxist. It's unbelievable. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 